Final look at the markets for this week. In Australia, the ASX 200 is up 0.2%. Stocks on the slide in Japan with the Nikkei 225 down uh, about a quarter of a percent, just 30 minutes into trading there. Uh, In South Korea, the Cosby is up 0.8%. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open flat in an hour's time. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is slightly firmer at $48.85 a barrel. Uh, Gold pretty well unchanged, $1,842 an ounce. Before I go, let me tell you about a very special Radio 3 auction, which is in aid of Operation Santa Claus. That's our annual charity, jointly run by RTHK and the South China Morning Post. During Money Talk next Thursday, that's the 10th of December, we're going to be launching an online auction where for 24 hours you can bid for some fabulous items which have been kindly donated by local businesses and companies. I'll be joined on the programme by special guest Jim Thompson, the founder and chairman of Crown Worldwide Group. All the proceeds we raise uh, from the auction will help our 19 deserving Op Santa charities. You can already go and see some of those items. If you go to the Radio 3 homepage, rthk.hk forward slash Radio 3, click on the auction website, you can see some of the things that are on offer. You won't be able to bid yet. The bidding will start from 8.15 next Thursday. We'll launch it in Money Talk and it will last for exactly 24 hours to the following morning in Money Talk when we'll close the auction and tell you how much we've raised. So once again, that's our 24-hour Radio 3 online auction. Go and have a look at the Radio 3 homepage, rthk.hk slash Radio 3 for all the details. Do stay tuned for Back Chat with Hugh Chiverton and Danny Gittings. Let me give you an update on the, uh, on the weather forecast. Going to be uh, fine and dry, rather cool in the morning, maximum temperature of about 20 degrees. The outlook is for it to remain fine and dry in the next couple of days. 14 degrees right now, 69% relative humidity. It's 8.32, here's Samantha Butler with the Half Hour News. Democratic Party Chairman Wu Chi-Wai says the party was expecting its former legislator Ted Hoi to return home from Denmark today and had no warning he would go into exile. Mr Hoi made the announcement last night and resigned from the party. He said the new national security law meant he could end up being jailed for decades for just talking about human rights in Hong Kong. Mr Wu told RTHK that people were angered by government efforts to suppress dissent and would find other ways to fight for freedom, not just in Hong Kong but from overseas. Ted Hui is making up his decisions, and I have no ideas in advance, but his departure will simply tell the international communities that the legal system in Hong Kong is not trustworthy and has not provided any fair trials in Hong Kong. And as a result, people have to reconsider what will be the way to fight in the future. Mr Hoi is facing a number of protest-related prosecutions. The Security Bureau and the police said they condemned anyone who absconded and tried to hide from their legal responsibilities. The U.S. Department of Defense has added two of the biggest companies in China to its blacklist of firms owned or controlled by the Chinese military. The leading chip maker, SMIC, and the Chinese oil and gas producer, Sinuk, will now be denied access to a range of U.S. goods and technology. America's top infectious disease expert Anthony Fauci says he has every confidence in the British medical regulator after appearing to question its speedy approval of a coronavirus vaccine. He offered an apology and said all he'd intended to highlight was the differences between the processes in Britain and the US. There really has been a misunderstanding. I apologize for that. I do have great faith in both the scientific community and the regulatory community at the UK. The point that was really trying to make, we in the United States 
had done it as quickly as the UK did, and that's no judgment, there likely would have been pushback on an already scrutinizing society that has really too much skepticism about the process. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chivas and your co-host today, Danny Gittings. Danny, good morning to you. Good morning. Today, Sino-Australian relations and China's spacecraft landing on the moon. Relations between Australia and China, its biggest trading parties, have nosedive in recent weeks, months and even years. China has blocked billions of dollars worth of Australian exports from lobsters to wine in recent months, all the while refusing to accept phone calls from Australian ministers. Ties soured further this week when a senior Chinese official posted an image or cartoon of an Australian soldier holding a knife with blood on it to the throat of an Afghan child, prompting Morrison to the Prime Minister, Australian Prime Minister, to demand an apology from Beijing. Well, what are the impact on both sides? How can the matter be resolved? Is this a long-term thing? Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Bankchat and RTHK Radio 3, or you can email us and we'll do our best to read out your messages, but long ones may get edited. That's bankchat at rthk.hk. Or you can call us and our telephone number is 233 88266. 233 88266 uh, is the number. Uh, we're joined for this uh, first part of the uh, discussion. We'll be joined by uh, others later, but uh, initially, uh, Mark O'Neill is with us, the author and uh, journalist who currently resides uh, in Hong Kong, and Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and Director of the International Graduate Programme in Politics at the East China Normal University. And we also hope uh, David Zweig, uh, who's an Emeritus Professor at the University of Science and Technology and Director of Transnational China Consulting Limited, will be joining us uh, also in this um, first part of the uh, programme. Once again, our email address is, is backchat at rthk.hk. Let's get uh, started with a couple. Um, uh, Herman says, uh, Jolly Jan's pro- post may have been undiplomatic. This is the the, uh, uh, the image that was put on Twitter, I think. But Australia, a country that likes to advertise itself as a free democracy, proud of her democratic institutions, rule of law, freedom of speech, assembly and political participation, should also know that when someone else practices his right of free speech to highlight the absolutely disgusting war crimes Australians committed against Afghans, it might not be to everyone's taste. In 1978, the American Civil Liberties Union took a controversial stand for free speech by defending a neo-Nazi group. Instead of standing courageously on principle like the ACLU did 42 years ago and accepting that free speech may include expression that some find offensive, all we hear is hypocritical outrage, much of it coming from a leader who went on vacation while his country was battling some of its worst wildfires uh, in years. That is from Herman. And an email from uh, Lou um, on the topic of today's show says, uh, Dear Backchat, that image by a Chinese CJ, CG artist is just a tool for Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, which he used to distract global attention away from the actual war crimes committed by Australian Special Forces. White Australian chauvinism is on full display in Morrison's demand for an apology from China saga. So is his contempt for China and the Chinese. How dare anyone, especially those deemed inferior to white Australians, criticise Australian war crimes? Australian, US and UK special forces have all been implicated in extrajudicial killings, which have been reported in the mainstream media over the past 10 years. But most inquiries were delayed, going nowhere. 
In 2011, a New Zealand inquiry endorsed the killing of civilians as legal and refused to hold anyone accountable. Thank you very much, Lou. Um, joining us, as we mentioned, is uh, Mark O'Neill, author and journalist Mark O'Neill. Good morning, Mark. Well, well, welcome back to the show. Good morning. So what are we to make of this? Uh, some, uh, and do, do we think that ordinary Chinese are behind their government to the sort of sentiment we've been hearing from uh, listeners just now? Well, I, I think um, Mr. Tsar made a mistake. Uh, I mean, as your, as your listeners rightly pointed out, what the Australian forces did in Afghanistan are completely unforgivable. And <clears throat> they are transparent. There's no need to add anything. They are all for their, for their all to see. But Mr. Zhao made a fabricated image, and I think that was a mistake, for, especially if you're a diplomat. Well, he didn't, uh, didn't make it, did he? I mean, he well, he made, posted it. He posted he it. He reposted it, already yeah. posted, yes. So what he could have said, he could have uh, uh, properly commented about the behavior of the Australian soldiers and say how poorly they behave in Afghanistan, and that would be fine, and everyone would agree with him. But I think... Um, a diplomat should not be in the business of uh, uh, posting a cartoon. So uh, I think your second listener was completely right. This has actually helped Scott Morrison because he's been able to turn the, the spotlight away from the atrocities to the, the tweets. And that's not appropriate. What we should be looking at is what the soldiers did and, and why they did it and who's going to be held accountable. I mean, that's, that's the issue. Now, Mr. Zhao is very popular in China. He's got 776,000 uh, people who, who read his tweets. He's the, he's the spokesman of, of the government. So, yes, I think he does have the backing of the people. And, uh, I mean, this is not really about what the Australians did, in, or, did or may or may not have done in Afghanistan, is it? it it's, a, it's, a, it's a much broader picture of um, tension between China and Australia. And we, only we, a few weeks ago, we had the Chinese embassy in Canberra listing sort of a, publishing sort of a list or giving to the media a list of 14 grievances against China, uh, Australia. Uh, yes, well, it all started in April because uh, Australia asked for an independent inquiry into the source of the COVID-19 uh, virus. And China was very, very angry because China's view is that it's not clear where the virus originated. It could have been in China, it could be elsewhere. And so early in the epidemic, Australia made this uh, demand. And... I think that was a mistake by the Australian government. I think they could have consulted with other countries or other institutions and made a joint request, but they made it alone by themselves. So that was the first thing they did, which angered Beijing very much. And then the second thing was these investigations by the Australian police of um, Chinese individuals in Australia over alleged interference in Australian political life. So these were the two things that, that started the row. And as you say, things have only escalated since then. And now we've got 80 Australian coal ships sitting off Chinese ports. They can't uh, unload their cargoes. So they're sitting there outside these ports. There are 1,500 sailors on the ships. Um, Chinese customs won't let them land. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is a very serious situation. These involve millions of dollars of losses. And uh, China has imposed <coughs> restrictions on several Australian products. And my take on this is that 
um, China cannot do this to the U.S. or to Japan or Germany. I mean, these countries are too important to the Chinese economy. But it sees Australia as vulnerable because China is the biggest trading partner of Australia. It takes 42% of its merchandise exports. You know, it, it's especially dependent on the Chinese economy. So China sees uh, Australia the weakest of these Western nations that it sees going up on it. So that's, I think, why they've gone after that. Do you think there's a sense of um, wanting to teach Australia a lesson here that perhaps could be learned by other countries that uh, might be tempted to, um, to make statements that China dislikes? Oh, very much so. I mean, as you mentioned, the 14 grievances, um, they, China would address these to all the Western countries, um, you know, uh, questioning China's sovereignty over Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, South China Sea, restrictions on Huawei, hostile media reporting of China, government support for think tanks which issue reports hostile to China. They were some of the grievances. Oh, yeah, I mean, China thinks that about all these uh, Western countries. But as I say, I, I think they see Australia as, as the weakest of them. All right, Professor Mahoney, good morning to you and thank you for joining us. Do, do, you, do you agree with that analysis that uh, China sees Australia as the, as the weakest of the, the Western allies and that's why the, the war is more intense on, on that front? And teach them a lesson that could, should, could be learned by other foreign countries as well? I think that, that analysis is largely correct. I think the only thing that, that, uh, I, would, that I would slightly change there is that um, in, in the case of, of Australia... Uh, we're looking at, a, 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 as has been noted, uh, Australia wants to do business and needs to do business with China on, on such a large scale. And, and what you see now, especially coming out of the last plenum, is this, this notion that if you want to do business with us, that's great. We want to do business with you as well, but don't bully us, right? And in the case of, uh, you know, what we have going on between uh, the U.S. and, and uh, um uh, China, that, that, you know, it's, it's not simply that China can't push the U.S., it can't discipline the U.S. Uh, that relationship is, is in a state of serious disrepair. In, in the case of Australia, though, you have Australia that has signed into RCEP, and uh, you have this, this other problem that, that uh, as many observers would conclude, that Australia doesn't really have an independent foreign policy. And the extent to which it's, you know, throwing punches uh, for Trump or throwing punches uh, for its security uh, guarantee in the United States, um, but in ways where it's still vulnerable economically to China, I think China just doesn't, uh, can't tolerate that, especially with the backdrop of the, you know, Indo-Pacific or the, the Quad uh, as, a, as a topic. You know, if we look at uh, Japan, India, uh, uh, Australia, uh, India can't really come into the Quad, uh, uh, not, at least not as, as originally envisioned by the United States, because it's too vulnerable. It has the most to lose. Uh, Japan won't, uh, uh, more than it already is. It's already sort of uh, figured out its, its relationship in between the U.S. and China. Australia is the one that's really, um, you know, it has the Marines uh, that, are, that are coming in lately into, in the last few years at least, into uh, uh, northern Australia. It's, it's a, a vital position um, in this, in this um, uh, potential quad relationship. But, but more importantly, you know, for those who are interested in geostrategic uh, considerations, the, 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 the North Pole and the South Pole are, are really the two vital regions right now 
in terms of uh, 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 global uh, strategy and defense. And Australia is, you know, that southern uh, hemispheric jumping off point to get into, as was New Zealand, and, and now, of course, New Zealand is, is, has its own problems with China. But uh, all of this is part of a much bigger uh, uh, picture that is really difficult to sort out. Um, I think the picture is a tempest in a teacup, but it is part of a much larger uh, uh, decline. Um, and we'll see where it goes with Biden. Okay, uh, one more uh, email. This is from Martin. Uh, Martin says, on the subject of Australia demanding China apologise for the Afghan tweet, for the repugnant Afghan tweet, Martin says China should apologise for what? For calling out Australia's war crimes and atrocities committed by its special forces in Afghanistan. It's clearly stated in the Brereton War Crimes Report that Australian forces committed war crimes in Afghanistan and indeed slit the throats of two children. Throughout the whole sad episode, Western double standards and hypocrisy were on full display. Neither New Zealand or any other Western country has condemned Australia for its war crimes, but they condemned China over a meme depicting the truth. That is from Martin. Uh, David Zweig, uh, good day to you. Thank you very much indeed for, for, for joining us. Um, uh, the sort of, um, you know, cause and effect in all this. How do you think it, if we look at Australia, how do you think this actually started? Was it that sort of uh, suspicion over uh, the role that China was playing in uh, domestic politics in, in Australia? Was that, that seemed to be the sort of uh, the smouldering fire for a while? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you get, I mean, one thing that I think is worth focusing on you is also. Uh, how important different leaders are in sort of Sino-Australian relations, um, and that uh, different leaders, some are more tough on China, some are less tough. And so I think uh, uh, Scott Morrison has taken uh, a pretty tough position, uh, and that's part of the, the grievances um, that has you know, sort of really annoyed the Chinese. Um, I heard a really, uh, I was listening to Yen Shretong. Uh, some of your audience may know uh, Professor Yen from Tsinghua. And, and he made an interesting point, which was that uh, he felt that uh, Australia, by, I mean, I guess the 14 grievances that Professor Mahoney mentioned, uh, that it was 90% taking the American perspective. I'm not sure I would, you know, I think that Australia has taken its own independent foreign policy at other times. I mean, 72, the opening to China was quite uh, an independent period. Uh, John Howard in the 90s, P. Lard, the the woman prime minister, uh, they all worked hard to get closer to China, uh, despite American hostility towards it. So I think in, in overall, uh, Australia has tried at different times to take a more balanced position. Uh, but at this point right now, they're, they've taken a position. And they feel, you know, as you said, um, they feel that the Chinese have interfered. Uh, they feel that they've tried to affect politics. Uh, 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 and if you look at the public opinion polls, you know, I went on the Lowy website today, so Lisa had something intelligent to say, uh, and um, uh, the Lowy website shows that China's really gone down in terms of public opinion within Australia. 
Yeah, we, we've got uh, so actually we've, we've we've got someone from Lowy coming on coming on later, and you're right. Yeah, the, um, I mean, and that's true all over the world, isn't it? You look at the the Pew reports, sure. the the image of of China has 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 really uh, decreased in well, in many certainly in many uh, Western countries and and Europe and South Korea and, and Japan or something. I mean, but doesn't that also suggest that this is not so much down to the individual Australian leaders? There is a, there is a considerable kind of uh, unanimity, and you got like statements from the Five Eyes. I don't remember sort of the Five Eyes coming up with with policy, you know, statements before uh, like that. They, they they really are kind of working in concert or thinking in concert at least um, the, the 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 West wait, when, it, when it when it comes to China. Um, uh, so I mean, you get a prime minister, yeah, and wait, till you get a president of the United States who who is going to be much more cooperative. One thing, though, I, I, I wanted to add, though, is it's, you know, this is not just because Australia is so vulnerable. Some would say that China needs Australian resources just as much as Australia needs China's resources. But, um, but you know, they've done this to Canada. You know, I'm Canadian, right? And they've done this to Canada. And, uh, uh, and South, South Korea as well, right? Right. They, they're very quick to use economic ties to uh, promote their own foreign policy and to punish countries, and and you know, and then they talk about globalization and, and open economy. So, but I mean, sanctions are used. I mean, the United States has used sanctions uh, innumerable times to try and punish countries uh, in different parts of the world. But those are usually for uh, bigger, bigger issues than for disagreeing and and taking uh, you know, foreign policy positions that you don't like. But Yen was very clear that the perception in China is particularly for Canada and Australia that they both have, at this point, swung completely behind the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, so, again, you know, the Australians have tried. You know, there's lots of voices in Australia. A few white who argue that just forget the U.S., you know, it's time to work with China. Um, there are lots of voices in Australia uh, who believe that they have to make a deal or work closer uh, with China, but it's really gone down the tubes, uh, I think, for the last couple of years. Mark O'Neill, how does this end? Does this end with all these voices in Australia that David Zweig was just talking about, uh, talking about more pra pra pragmatic approach and uh, pr pr prevailing? Well, I think in the case of iron ore, uh, I think that won't be affected because Australia is too important a supplier of iron ore for China. So I think exports of that will continue. But many of the other products which, China, which Australia exports to China can be bought elsewhere, including coal. So uh, I'm not optimistic in the short term. Uh, for the reasons that the speakers have outlined. I mean, we're, we're moving toward another Cold War now. Australia is in the Western camp. so. Um, but Australia is, as we were saying earlier, it's a minor target, isn't it, in the overall scheme of things? Oh, yes. And, and Mr. Morrison said we won't accept the 14 grievances. We won't apologize for them. So there's going to be no movement on that score. There'll be no movement on the tweet. Uh, China is not going to apologize for the tweet. So... Perhaps on specific um, products there could be agreements because each side needs the other. 
But I think in the bigger picture, in the strategic picture, the diplomatic picture, no, I don't think there will be an improvement. Look, things will get worse. If you look at China's rows with other countries, the South Korean example I mentioned, actually quite a few people in Australia talking now about the South Korean example, the, the two sides did manage, relations were very bad, but they did ma- manage more or less to patch things over afterwards. Uh, yes, but, I mean, there was great uh, loss to South Korea. I mean, all the Lotte stores in China closed. Um, the Chinese boycotted Korean products for, for some time. But that's over now, basically. I agree. that They, they went through that phase and they, they came out again. And uh, um, South Korea didn't kick the American missiles out of... Um, out of South South Korea. I mean, they did say they wouldn't take any more, but uh, to an extent, they still stood their ground. But I think South Korea is a very difficult position. I mean, it's 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 extremely close to China. China is the main ally of North Korea. Um, you know, a, a war with North Korea is always possible. So, I mean, South Korea has to be much more um, thoughtful about what it does with China than 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 the Western countries. So, yes, you, you're correct, but. Um, I think, no, I think in the short term I see no improvements between Australia and China. Uh, President Mahoney, what's your take on that? How, is there a way out? What, what might it be? Uh, yeah, I, I, I saw a headline earlier today. Uh, I'm in the US. So, uh, Sorry, could you, could you now, talk a little bit more directly into the phone? Sorry, then we can hear you better, it, Professor Mahoney. Yes, I'm Thank sorry. You, yeah. I, I said that, uh, uh, you know, I'm in the US, and so right now and uh, earlier today, I, I thought I saw some some headline that Morrison was kind of trying to soften his position after this immediate outburst that we've seen with the tweet. Um, I do think that we're going to see a significant shift in Australia's position with uh, Biden. Uh, I think that uh, Australia is trying to survive the last days of the Trump administration. I don't know that we'll necessarily see a change in leadership in in Canberra, but I do think that uh, there's already a lot of talk about how Biden will reinvigorate Five Eyes, uh, that, it, that it's actually been on a serious decline since 2019 with Trump. Um, and so that, you know, we may see that as, as Biden appoints, uh, as, as some reports indicate, uh, an Asia czar, someone who will take the lead on, on um, uh, directing uh, foreign policy in the White House on Asia, and, and that will have a substantial overlap with Australia. Um, we may see this, uh, of course, having some immediate uh, impact on uh, Indo-Pacific, some softening of relations, or at least a de-escalation of relations. I think all of this uh, has uh, some possibility for, for optimism uh, in the next year. Um, and I think it's critical that, that, that we see this because, you know, so many people are suffering economically because of, of COVID. Uh, so there'll be all these pressures, you know, to try to, to return to some sort of uh, manageable normal, even if we'll never go back to what was. And what? how will things change in China? Will things just kind of go back to how they were in China's minds or something changed there? Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, China, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, we always have to run the, the you have to avoid trying to over-intellectualize uh, these types of diplomatic spats. Uh, these are very generally emotional outbursts. Um, and this, this happens quite a bit in diplomatic circles. Uh, and, and in China's case, there's always this, this notion of reciprocity. Uh, I think, I think the, the Chinese, as I understand it, the tweet was not an official account. It was a personal account. I know that the guy is an official, uh, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was, was, was clear about that. Um, but but the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was quick, quick, to back, quick to back him. I mean, in the, the main spokesman came out well, and said... I, yeah, it, yeah but, but what they said, 
said is it was a personal account, and, and they did defend it, but what they said was, uh, you know, this was uh, simply a, a representation of something that in reality was much worse. Now, I don't want to get into that to, to be an apologist or, or a defender of that. What, what I think what you see in, in Beijing's mind is that the, the amount of, of anti-China propaganda and, 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 and you know, racist propaganda at times that has come out of Western countries, and, and some of it has come out of Australia, that has been directed at, at China, uh, that this is, you know, this is not a grotesque response, given the fact that it, you know, corresponds to some extent... <laughs> Can, can, can I just ask, can I ask, sorry, could I just be a little bit more specific? What, what would be an example of, of uh, racist uh, propaganda that's come out of Australia, anti-China propaganda, racist propaganda? Well, what you have is, that's come out of uh, Washington, of course, is, is quite a bit. But in, in the case of uh, Australia, you had uh, quite a number of, uh, of testimonies that were taking place uh, in the uh, Australian legislature um, that were positing a lot of uh, very unverified and, and uh, damning uh, implications of, of uh, what China had done to uh, specific academics. And, and by the way, I happen to know a lot of these people personally, and completely fabricated. And it, it was that, that was it when was they were saying things like, prove, prove you're not a member of the, of the party or something. Uh, I don't want to name names because it's going to get into uh, something, but... but there were a lot of things coming out of Canberra okay. that were promoting uh, a very uh, negative and, 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 and sort of double standard uh, position on China. Uh, and I'm simply saying that in that context, uh, you know, the other thing that you've seen so much coming out of China... Yeah, I'm, I'm so, of, sorry, uh, we are out of time, sorry, because it's just coming up to, to, to 9 o'clock. But first of all, many thanks for joining us, and thanks to, to uh, Mark O'Neill. We're going we're to continue uh, uh, with uh, some other... Uh, guests, uh, uh, as well as David Zweig, uh, after the news at nine. Uh, the weather fine and dry, rather cool this morning. 14 degrees at the moment. Humidity is at 69%. Back in three minutes. ...will be prohibited unless it's for work, medical reasons or emergencies. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Friday morning. Uh, I guess if you're looking for some good news, uh, <laughs> which is a little hard to find uh, supply, yeah. around the world, uh, but perhaps particularly in Hong Kong uh, recently, um, then uh, tune in on uh, to Back Chat next uh, Thursday. Uh, we'll be raising money for Operation Santa Claus. We're having an auction all day that day on uh, RTHK uh, Radio 3, uh, an online uh, auction. Uh, you can check out our homepage and look at the, for the details there. And uh, due to a popular request, Father Christmas himself, Santa Claus, will be joining us for a phone-in uh, between 9 and uh, 9.30 next Thursday. You should put it on Facebook Live so people could see actually see Father Christmas. Uh, my, well, I don't, yeah, we could do. Yeah, we could consider that. We have troubles in the studio because of, yeah. of the thing. Uh, but, um, yeah, anyway, um, so if you want uh, children especially, welcome to uh, phone in and uh, put is their questions and requests. the first time Father Christmas has been on back chat? This is the first time he, we've been trying to get him for a long yes, time. Yes, I know. He's, uh, maybe he'll manage, we'll manage to get Carrie Lamb after Father he, Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, a guaranteed mild time uh, between 9 and 9.30 uh, next Thursday. 
as, we, as we're joined by uh, Father Christmas. Uh, we're talking uh, this morning, we're going to be talking later this morning about the uh, landing of that uh, Chinese spacecraft uh, on the moon, uh, uh, the implications uh, of that with uh, an astrophysicist. Uh, uh, but uh, we're continuing our discussion now on Sino-Australian uh, relations. Uh, still with us is uh, David Zweig, Director of Transnational China Consulting Limited, Emeritus Professor at the University of Science and Technology. We're also joined now by Daniel Flitton, who's managing editor of the Lowy Institute's international magazine, The Interpreter. We were talking a little bit about, uh, we touched on the Lowy Institute in the first part of the programme this morning. Thank you very much indeed for all the uh, emails and comments uh, on that uh, discussion. Backchat at rthk.hk is our email address once again. And we've got, we've got a caller on the line now. I think it's Matthew. Matthew, good morning. Morning, Hugh. Uh, it's a shame. I think it was Professor Mahoney before the news was uh, accusing Australia and the US of having uh, made equally kind of outrageous, fake uh, comments about China and insulting racist remarks and things. But he failed to come up with a with a tangible example. I was hoping he might have thought one up over the news. But the, the reason for my call is that I think it's a little bit. Um, incorrect and infactual to kind of position Australia as the US lapdog in, in standing up to, uh, to China. If you look at the sequence of events over the last few years, I think, yeah, having kind of watched them quite closely, I think Australia stood up or began standing up to, to the CCP even in advance of the US and calling out foreign interfer- interference uh, in the, in the in the education system, in the parliamentary system, um, and kind of led the way. So I think the narrative that uh, Australia is China's lapdog, uh, sorry, the US's lapdog is, is that's a bit old school. That's uh, and, and, and really, I think that the narrative that the CCP wants to push. Uh, so that, that's just an observation I wanted to make. It interesting to see what the Lowy Institute person thinks as well. Okay, Matthew, thank you very much indeed for your your comment. Uh, Here's an email from uh, Candy, uh, who says, uh, The diplomatic dispute the Australian administration has stirred up against China won't fool me. When the sinner casts the first stone, it's clear why he does so. Scott Morrison may not want people to discuss these issues and focus on a drawing instead, but we know what's really behind this dispute. The need to shift focus away from the problem of his government. I remember how the Australian government attacked the media last year when they exposed their human rights violations against refugees and the Indigenous people there, some of the most vulnerable people on the planet. Uh, on top, Australia congratulated Charlie Hebdo for portraying all Muslims as terrorists in fake images, with former uh, uh, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop presenting cartoons to Hebdo staff in solidarity in 2015. So cartoons hurting Muslims should be glorified and encouraged, but images drawing attention to Western war crimes against Afghan civilians should be censored and condemned. That comes uh, from Candy. And in a similar vein, an email from uh, Martin, uh, taking issue with comments made by uh, Mark O'Neill. Mark O'Neill was a guest on the uh, first half of the show uh, this morning. Uh, Martin says, Western double standards all the way, also on your show, deflecting from Australia's agitation and in the end blame China. Mark O'Neill presented a rather lame excuse, saying as a diplomat, Jowli Jun shouldn't have posted that cartoon. Then how would Mark O'Neill explain that in 2015, then-Australian Foreign Minister Julie Bishop presented a rather distasteful cartoon from David Pope he drew first to Charlie Hebdo, basically doubling down and on insulting and blaming Muslims? 
French and Western cartoonists can insult Islam. Western politicians can insult the Chinese with virus memes. An Australian MP can compare China to Nazi Germany, all in the name of their freedom of speech. But when there is a truthful mem about war crimes committed by one of the Five Eyes countries, then it's all about censorship and outrage. If Morrison had any decency after reading the Australian war crimes report, he would have apologised first to the Afghan people, offering his and Australia's condolences and compensation to the victims' families, instead of asking China for an apology for telling the truth. Thank you very much, Martin. Uh, a couple more uh, we can just squeeze in. Uh, Alan says, in the last week, the Wu Mao and Shu Shiners are lining up to denigrate Australia. Uh, they make the ludicrous position that China has a moral high ground as for war crimes and atrocities. As your academic guests have noticed, this is purely a tool to pressure Australia as proxy for the West in general. If they expect Australia to kowtow, it's unlikely. Such an in-your-face insult makes it impossible for the PM to back down, regardless of the cost to business. And uh, Martin says, here is one example of insults by Australian MP Andrew Hastie and Senator James Patterson comparing China to not see Germany. There are many more uh, which you can Google. That comes uh, from Martin. Uh, uh, Daniel Flitton, good morning to you. Good day. Thank you very much indeed for, for, for joining us now. Um, when did this start? Uh, we, we're getting a lot of this sort of tit-for-tat and sort of uh, reaction and counter-reaction and so on. What was the sort of um, beginning of this, do you think? Uh, well, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank you and thanks for having me on. It, it's in a way, that's an impossible question to answer. It's certainly been amplified and accelerated uh, the, the tension between Australia and China this year through this pandemic year. Uh, but it does stretch back uh, a lot further. Uh, and this latest incident surrounding the tweet and the reactions to the tweet have have, um, have brought it into sharper have brought attention into sharper focus. But I remember. Uh, travelling to China in 2012 while I was a journalist at the time. And uh, at that stage, the Chinese uh, authorities' government was unhappy with Australia uh, around statements that were being made on the South China Sea issue uh, and the uh, building of, of artificial islands that then came a couple of years later. And then beyond that, too, um, one of your respondents there mentioned the uh, the foreign interference laws which Australia enacted, um, which, which started to become a, a, an issue in 2017. So there's a long, a long history back over the last decade of, of, of tensions between Australia and China, and you could go back even further. Uh, but certainly now, and certainly in the last few months, things have really come to a head, and, and that's no better demonstrated by the fact that Australian ministers can't get their Chinese counterparts to return their telephone calls at the moment. So the two countries are really speaking um, through the media and through these kind of controversies that we're seeing around the tweet, and that's not conducive to a, do, a, um, an easy conversation. Does Prime, does Prime Minister Morrison have public support behind him on, on this uh, issue? I think that there's, there's always an element of... Uh, people will rally around the flag, uh, and yeah, this this tweet by the the Chinese uh, deputy foreign, Minister, uh, foreign affairs spokesman uh, has certainly has certainly uh, pricked up uh, a lot of nationalist sentiments that that I think are always evident. But there is a, also, and I think, a healthy political debate uh, which is which has been shown in Australia. So. Uh, the, the Labor Party in opposition.
on the China relationship, which I think is healthy in a democracy because it's all about debating what is the best policy and that's the strength that Australia brings, that Australia has in this, is to, to, to try and work, it, work these things through. So I think, yes, I think broadly you could say the government has, um, has, has uh, public support, but it's not uncritical public support. Why... Yeah, yeah, go on, David's very good. Yeah, I just wanted to add... Yeah, please. um, Because, again, um, using Lowy, uh, the 2020 survey, um, uh, one of the just sort of the trends. So in 2018, uh, 12% of Australians saw China as a security threat more than an economic opportunity while 80% of Australians saw China more as an economic opportunity than a military threat. By 2020, 41% of Australians saw China as a security threat and 55% as you know, the most important thing being a security threat, while 55% saw its major role as being an economic partner. So you've got a 25% drop in two years in the number of Australians who actually see China as an economic opportunity, that's gone down. And, uh, um, you know, in a 29% increase in the percentage of people who see China as a security threat. So I would think that that's going to give Morrison a fair amount of support. You know, and she's, if you look again at, at uh, China, uh, Australians have absolutely no confidence in Xi Jinping that he will do anything right in foreign policy. He's way at the bottom uh, of these public opinion polls. Now, that's also the media, I'm sure, also you know, creating that kind of image and the government creating that kind of image. But those are pretty bad numbers. Uh, Daniel Flinton, what, what, what do you make of um, David Zweig? You're from the Lowry Institute. David Zweig, uh, quoting from your own uh, organization's um, surveys. No, and I think that the thing you can add to that as well, which, which does... Uh, create an, an even more febrile uh, political environment in a sense is that those that same, uh, although the numbers are not quite the same, there is a, a big drop too in the confidence Americans have in the United States, and particularly the United States President in Donald Trump to do the right thing in world affairs. Now that, that, that may change under Joe Biden. Uh, there was certainly a, a much higher faith from Australians in um, in. Barack Obama, uh, and perhaps less so in, in George W. Bush, so I don't know that that's necessarily a partisan point or just uh, something to do with the personalities of those particular individuals. But in this environment, with tensions with China, but also a lack of confidence in the United States, I think that that's created a, a, a sense in Australia for a long time that, that there's been talk about a, a, you know, a fear of, of abandonment is, is one of the phrases that's used, or a sense of of being something, um, something of a country alone in, in a region surrounded by threats. That's something that um, that has been a tendency in Australia, and I think that these tensions amplify that feeling. And, and can Australia survive a essentially a China um, trade boycott? A trade war? Yes. Um, yes, I think Australia can survive it, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't come without a cost, and we've seen in the last uh, few months uh, tariffs put on on um, big Australian exports like barley, um, most recently on wine, but also on seafood exports. 
lots of people are watching as to whether iron ore um, will be under pressure. It's more difficult for the Chinese to, to reliably source that from elsewhere. It's certainly true that Australia has a huge economic relationship with China, and that's built um, in the last couple of decades to something like um, uh, 24% or thereabouts of, of Australian exports um, headed to China. So if that market were to suddenly disappear overnight, uh, that would, of course, of course, have an economic cost for Australia. But I don't think it's beyond the wit of the, of the, of the nation to be able to find other export markets and there are other opportunities. But all of these things come at a cost. Again, this, though, is a, a much bigger story than just Australia-China relations. It has to do with the, the broader uh, economic tensions that have developed between China and the United States uh, in, in the last couple of years. How much of that reflects an attitude that was particular to the Trump administration and will be continued by the Biden administration, we'll have to see. But I don't anticipate that that will suddenly get better overnight with the inauguration of a new president. Yeah. Um, yeah. David's I, like, yeah. I jump in one yeah, go on. Yeah, I just, I just want to say that, you know, for, for so long, Australia has had to do the balance of trade, economic relationship, and dependence or interdependence with China and strategic dependence on the United States. And Morrison seems to be the first prime minister who's really willing to take the hit on the economics. And the, the, I think the numbers that Lowy Institute found suggest that he actually, uh, uh, as uh, uh, Mr. Flynn said, he actually could, could weather this for a while, whereas people, I think, would have thought that he would have caved in pretty quickly because of the uh, economic influence of China, but that they'll try and diversify, whether they can or can't. Uh, that's up to, you know, that, that yeah. we'll have to see. But they really not given in so fast, as I think people thought, you know, outside of Australia, they thought they might have. Can you I, wouldn't, Daniel? I wouldn't only put it on, on Scott Morrison, though. I think that the... the the international dynamics have changed such that it's it's also a case where uh, Australia is in many ways responding to a changed international environment. It was under, under Morrison's predecessor, Malcolm Turnbull, that some of the uh, previous laws that were enacted that have so got up the nose of, of China and some of your listeners may be aware that, that there was a 14-point a uh, list that was issued by the uh, Chinese embassy in Australia just recently, which went through a series of issues that China was, um, was annoyed about with Australia, and one of those was the introduction of foreign interference laws, um, uh, and they came about in, in 2018. So that was Morrison's predecessor. And I think, regardless of the political hue of the government in Australia, I think that um, tensions with China were going to come about because uh, China's um, China has also changed in the last in the last decade. Uh, China has become more assertive in the region, and um, and China's actions, whether it's with regard to the introduction of the national security laws in Hong Kong or the detention of Uyghurs in um, in Xinjiang, that's drawn an international response. Australia's been part of that, and that that's also complicated the relationship. 
Okay. Well, Daniel Flitton, many thanks for joining us, managing editor of the Lowy Institute's international magazine, The Interpreter. And thank you to David Zweig, director of Transnational China Consulting Limited and emeritus professor at the University of Science and Technology. Thank you both very much indeed for uh, joining us. Um, let's go uh, finally today. Uh, to uh, the moon, the news is that uh, the Chang'e space... Is it Chang'e or Chang'e? Uh, Chang'e 5 spacecraft has lifted off uh, from the moon after a 19-hour operation to collect lunar rock samples there. It will uh, return to Earth w uh, with those samples. Uh, for comment, we're joined now by Professor Quentin Parker from the Department of Physics, Director of the Space Research Laboratory, Laboratory at the University of Hong Kong. Professor Parker, good day to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, 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 for joining us. So, uh, good day and good morning to all your listeners. Yeah, quite, quite an achievement then. Look, this is a... Um, um a sort of validation of the massive Chinese space engagement program uh, that's been going on for quite a few years now and is building up quite ahead of steam. This is a, a kind of a, 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 one of the first countries outside of America and Russia to be able to do such a sophisticated uh, mission, sample return to the moon. They're going to bring back a few kilos, maybe two kilos or so, uh, of moon rock from an area of the moon that's not really been sampled before. All the all the other missions, the Russian mission and the American missions, uh, were on much older surfaces on the moon, a few billion years, four billion years. Well, this sample is going to a much younger part of the moon where more recent volcanic activity dates to rocks probably around 1.2, 1.3 billion years. So there's an exciting science we hope will come out of this mission, Ex assuming they can get the sample back. E exciting science. What kind of thing, what sort of things are you hoping for? Well, I mean, something to understand the way that the moon has formed and, you know, and the way that uh, the materials on the moon might reflect other materials in other terrestrial bodies in our own solar system, uh, because everything was kind of formed uh, billions of years ago when our own Earth was formed and our other planets formed as well. Uh, but that process took a long time. And so also impact uh, issues in history are all part of this process, all to do with the geology of both our nearest uh, satellite, the moon, and, of, of course, other parts of our solar system eventually. Well, how about something a bit more basic? How about some water? I mean, of course, it's only a f few weeks since NASA made a big play of saying they got conclusive proof of water on the moon. You're saying well, no, the, the, the Indians also, with their satellite, found uh, water uh, hidden in craters towards the north of the, of the moon. But uh, the recent results are to do with a lot more water found more broadly. Uh, in, in small quantities, but sufficient that, you know, if we're going to go to the moon and, and, the, and the Chinese have a, a mission to, to uh, plans to, 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 go, to put manned mission on the moon, I think America does too, is that they'll need to, if they're going to stay there, then they'll need resources. So um, water is the basic fundamental uh, resource you need for everything. And we've now discovered there's quite a lot of water on the moon in one form or another. So do you think any samples there that the Chinese spacecraft brings back could, could, could um, tell us more about, that, more about the presence of water on the moon as well? Um, it's possible. I mean, um, you know, the moon is an incredibly dry and arid place, <laughs> nevertheless. But once you go subsurface, and, the, uh, and what the, this mission, uh, the, the Chinese mission has done is drilling down a metre or two into the subsurface, uh, to extract material from down below. They'll be able to look at the, you know, this is a very different part of the moon's surface. If you look at the moon, it's very um, scarred. There's lots of impact craters. There's some, some Mari due to um, volcan volcanic activities in the distant past, etc. So the moon is quite a complex geological place with different terrains and different ages. And so understanding the different... Um, complexities of the makeup of the different parts of the moon will help us to understand not just the moon but also how we might want to go and stay there 
Um, how, how significant is this in, in technological terms? Because I, I noticed that the this was done by Russia 50 years ago. In 1970, they landed on the moon and returned samples uh, to Earth. 50 years is a, it's a long time in, in technological terms, isn't it? It is. And don't forget, America went and put man on the moon in 1969, so that's a long time ago as well, and nobody's been back since. Um, so, um, but technology has improved significantly. China's own program, I um, mean, it's got a very, uh, very strongly emerging and burgeoning space science research program. It's not just going to the moon, it's planning to go to Mars, it's putting up a space station, it's putting uh, um, different kinds of science satellites up. I mean, Hong Kong U was part of a, uh, you know, a satellite that we launched in July the 25th with the Nanjing University as partner, and it was um, a small lobster eye X-ray telescope. So even Hong Kong is starting to emerge, and we have, you know, locally the Hong Kong Aerospace Technology Group and the Orion Astropreneur Space Academy starting up. So I think, you know, around all these science missions, there's also a burgeoning commercial space program that's also growing, and China's playing a significant role in all of these areas. Are there commercial opportunities on the moon? Uh, eventually, there will be. I mean, there's commercial opportunities in space, you know, with the asteroids, some of which have more nickel and heavy metals and rare earth elements than, uh, than we're struggling to extract now from, from our own planet. Uh, and so, um, you know, as well, if, you get, if you've got water on the moon, you've got oxygen and you've got hydrogen. You've got fuel and you've got breathing air. And so uh, also with the emergence of 3D printing technologies, you know, you can start to actually manufacture your own components and things on the moon from the materials around you. If you know what those materials are, if you know what their um, composition is and how much uh, metals and other useful uh, resources can be extracted from a given part of the moon's surface. I mean, I mean, all the headlines recently, of course, that were for years really have been about Mars, have been about, you know, prospects for, for, the, for that planet rather than the moon. It's been rather dimmed uh, lately. Uh, you know, are scientists still interested in, in the moon? I'm sure there are some, you know, but did, have you noticed that the attention has generally kind of uh, shifted a little bit? I mean, I'm almost also thinking of the fact that, that uh, as I understand it, I mean, they took away, that they've got a couple of hundred kilograms or something of of, of moon rock uh, that the Apollo missions returned um, and they don't even know what to do with it now they've kind of run out of tests to to do on it or am I uh, misrepresenting the situation there? Well I mean once you uh, analyse the mineral content of a sample then you know exactly what it is I mean but the thing about this mission is it's going and analysing a completely different surface part of the moon that's never been studied before and so it's like another sample point. You know, the moon, if you look at the Earth, you say, oh, I'm going to go and study uh, rocks and minerals in China or in Australia or in South Africa. You look at these things, they're incredibly different because the Earth is incredibly complicated in terms of its geology. You know, with the samples from billions of years being brought up to the surface and being eroded away and, and the continental drift and all these things. The moon is more stable, but nevertheless, it's got a, quite a complex geology, you know, and then you've only got a tiny sample. It's like trying to understand the whole of Australia from only mining in Perth, not mining in, you know, in South Australia or Western, you know, Northern Western Australia or Queensland or whatever. You know, you only get a small snippet. You only get a small sample. If you want to understand what's really going on, you need to sample all over the place. And you mentioned about commercial opportunities. Um, the, how about tourism? I mean, uh, to, to just... <laughs> well, I think, um, we'll get tourism, I think, with Virgin Galactic and things like that in low Earth orbit uh, shortly. Yeah, uh, in just terms say... of, um, you know, the 2001 space hotels that from that wonderful movie of Stanley Kubrick, that's still a, a way off. But, you know, this is a start. I think, you know, mankind needs to uh, get out there. We're looking at what we're doing to our own planet. 
Uh, it might not be habitable 100 years from now if we're not careful. So if there are alternatives for us, we need to start to explore our own solar system in a more meaningful way. And I think, uh, you know, the major powers like uh, America, China, uh, Russia, now India too, has got a burgeoning space program, are looking into ways to explore the moon, and, you know, the moon is a staging post for other air, for other exploration onto Mars, etc. But the moon is close by, the moon has resources, it's now got water, and so it, it's a sensible place to look at trying to establish the first serious human settlement on a different body outside of the Earth. Now, I was just thinking on tourism, because as far as I understand, uh, SpaceX and uh, Virgin Galactic and so on, uh, they, they're not allowed to take uh, mainland Chinese on their, on, their, on their huge waiting lists that they have. So um, these rich mainland Chinese entrepreneurs, I'm sure, like anywhere else in the world, some of them want to go into space as well. They can't turn to the they're Western. They're not allowed to take them. <laughs> I think there's a restricted list of countries. That really? You're, you're admitted, yeah. uh, can I come to ask finally, Professor Parker, you're, you're director of the Space Research Laboratory at the University of Hong Kong. Is that, is that right? That's new to me. What, what do you do there? What, what's, what is that about? That space oh, uh, we've been going for about three years. Mm-hmm. We're an interdisciplinary research entity under the Faculty of Science. We've got members from the Department of Earth Sciences and from the Physics Department, also from you know, the School of Biological Sciences through remote sensing activities and some engineers from the Faculty of Engineering. So we're a real interdisciplinary centre looking at trying to uh, build up uh, sort of a, a base in uh, engagement in space and planetary sciences principally and the research that we can do there. So we've got a whole series of different missions and projects that we're planning on. You've heard about the one I mentioned earlier where we uh, launched along with Nanjing University um, a, a, a unique lobster eye x-ray telescope with a dark matter hunter looking for a kind of neutrino decay from dark matter that will have a telltale x-ray signal. And that's already launched and it's working. We're planning to launch next year a small UV telescope um, along uh, with our partners, BISME. BISME is the Beijing Institute for Science and Mechanical Electricity that's sort of building the, the satellite uh, payload and other companies building the platform. But anyway, we've got a, quite a, an ambitious program. I mean, I know that uh, other universities have small interest in space. Chinese University of Hong Kong has been doing uh, remote sensing for a long time. And uh, PolyU was involved in uh, the Chang- Chang'e missions with a small camera that they had on these. But we're actually leading a, a major uh, space science mission not a technical mission, but a science mission. And, uh, and so we're interested in doing the science, mainly. Okay. Well, th- thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, Quentin Parker there, Professor in the Department of Physics and Director of that Space Research Laboratory at the University of uh, Hong Kong. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, a few emails to uh, finish off. Uh, John says, your caller yesterday reporting he could find no answer to his question about meetings at home is spot on. The government's COVID website is chaotic and appears to be out of date in parts too. My experience was needing to confirm the the difficult-to-believe ability of someone going to his quarantine hotel could travel any way he liked. An obvious question for an FAQ, you would have thought, but to this day there's no answer on the website, nor an answer when I asked that question by email. Uh, following the government announcement that designated transport will be required now, I would have expected an FAQ to tell me the new procedure, but I cannot find one. Uh, oh dear, all this is just a reflection of our government's lack of attention to detail and professionalism. That comes uh, from John Paul says in an email, uh, Yesterday, your guest remarked that closing the schools was a brilliant idea, citing that children spread the disease easily, yet he did not cite one super spreader event where children were to blame. On Wednesday, your expert cited Singapore's mask policy as an example of masks working, despite the fact that we've had masks mandated in Hong Kong since July, and yet here we are in an 
another outbreak. But if Singapore is our benchmark, then why are we suspending schools? Backchat, please put these so-called experts to task and stop asking them what they what they believe or how they feel. Stick to the facts. That's from uh, Paul in Taipo. Thank you very much indeed for that. One more from Sam. Uh, who says uh, world leaders are suffering from an appalling gripe over the sentencing of three activists in Hong Kong. This is a totally unacceptable meddling of internal affairs of Hong Kong. First, Dominic Raab should urge external hands to, bring an, to quote, bring an end to their campaign to stifle Hong Kong. There is no nothing called a free lunch in Hong Kong. Umbrella movement, riots, defiance observed are no exception. What does Nancy Pelosi expect when the activists plead guilty? To reward them who has turned out to be gullible, helpless pawns of their external master. Uh, that's from uh, Sam. Thank you very much indeed for that. And uh, Danny, thank you very much indeed. Stand by for Father Christmas. Uh, next week, he'll be with us between 9 and 9.30, as I say, uh, next Thursday. I uh, hope you have a good weekend. It's going to be nice, fine, dry, cool this morning, and uh, fine and dry in the next couple of days, staying cool in the morning. 15 degrees, just 15 degrees now. Yeah, and it's going to be cold. 65%. Amid the epidemic, thanks to all for being self-disciplined to protect yourselves and others. Thanks for keeping up personal and environmental hygiene and contributing to fighting the virus. We must take further steps. Keep track of your whereabouts. If you are sick, don't go to work or school. See the doctor and get tested promptly. We will prevail over the epidemic. Visit coronavirus.gov.hk for details. Fight, Fight the, the virus. virus. Stay, Stay vigilant. vigilant. 934, the news with Samantha Butler. Democratic Party Chairman Wu Chi-Wai says the party was expecting its former legislator Ted Hoi to return from Denmark today and had no warning he would go into exile. Mr Wu told RTHK that people were angered by government efforts to suppress dissent and would find other ways to fight for freedom, not just in Hong Kong but from overseas. The U.S. Department of Defense has added two of the biggest companies in China to its blacklist of firms owned or controlled by the Chinese military. The leading chip maker SMIC and the Chinese oil and gas producer Sinook will now be denied access to a range of U.S. goods and technology. And America's top infectious disease expert Anthony Fauci says he has every confidence in the British medical regulator after appearing to question its speedy approval of a coronavirus vaccine. He offered an apology and said all he'd intended to highlight was the differences between the processes in Britain and the U.S. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Hi. Good morning. And good morning to you too. How are you doing? Excellent. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning.